Hello and bonjour. My name is Dusty Rhodes and you're welcome to the Mimosa Matters Winning Against Cancer podcast, a short series where people around us or connected with Mimosa Matters share their stories. Today we're speaking with Karen, who moved her young family to the south of France as part of a big adventure. After all, what was the worst that could happen? Little did she know that what was ahead of her would bring out a fierce fighting spirit within her and show her the importance of family, friends and time. We began with the move to France. So listen, tell me, what was it that actually brought you to France? Well, uh, we bought a place down here on the coast in Lanapool uh, back in the early 2000s. And we used to spend a lot of time down here as a family, um, holidays, high days, Christmas, all of that kind of thing. And the more we came down, the more we just fell in love with the area, got to know people. uh, We explored a lot. And um, I've always been a Francophile anyway. I, I studied French when I was younger, spent a lot of time here growing up. And um, we got to a point where we just thought, as a family, why not let's have an adventure and, you know, see, see how it goes. What's the worst that can happen? We could always go back if it didn't work out. So, my, you know, I left my London sensibilities behind. We sold up in the UK and we made sure that it wasn't too easy for us to go back. We wanted to give it a good crack. Um, yeah, and that was 13 years ago this year. So, still here, still loving it. And, um yeah, it's been an amazing adventure and I really, you know, I love my life down here. I, I love the lifestyle. I love so much about this area, uh, everything from the climate to the food to the ease of being able to travel into Italy and Spain and just the, the general sort of culture and, yeah, the, the, the life is is fabulous. Well, you're the Francophile in the family. How are the rest of the family with it? Do they share your enthusiasm? Well, yes. Uh, at first, it was quite a difficult settlement period because our girls were quite young. And uh, after the initial honeymoon period wore off, they were a little bit like, well, can we go back to school in London now? Uh, no, that's not happening. You're here now and you're going to school here. So there was a period of readjustment for them and obviously learning the language. But um, then they became really proficient bilingual. Uh, they both went to uh, French international schools here and then international school. Um, so they learned in French and in English. And it's been an amazing bonus, I think, for them. They, they are now grown up and live uh, away from France now, but they love coming home to visit. Um, my husband, he really embraced it at first. Then he went through a period of feeling a little bit kind of, oh, really? It's such hard work, you know all of the bureaucracy and the the things you have to do, the hoops you have to jump through sometimes, which I think you find wherever you live in a different country, you know, and it's not your home country. But um, we're still here and we still love it and we love our lives here. And we we do travel back to the UK quite regularly and elsewhere. But um, for me, living in France is, you know, it's just where I live. It's home. And I've thought of it as home for a very long time now. It's kind of interesting where your story starts because you moved and you're living the dream and you were still at that stage where all of your friends and family back home are kind of going, oh, I hate her. She's down there in the south of France and everything is perfect every single day. Uh, And then one day it very much wasn't. Can you tell me about, even before you had your diagnosis, can can you explain to me what kind of led up to it? What was in the back of your mind where you went, I should get that looked at? 
Well, um, I'd had a really busy summer. Um, I always worked at the Cannes Film Festival, which was back to back, really. I mean, I was just never at home for that period of sort of 12, 13 days. It was full on morning, noon and night right through to the next morning. I, I was literally used to getting about three hours sleep, doing all the parties and things for Hello Magazine and so forth. So it was great fun, but I would always end that period feeling absolutely shattered. That was quite normal. Um, I was 43 then. Um, so, you know, a bit younger than I am now and, you know, just used to that pace of life. Really. We then went away, uh, traveling for the summer, which is what we do every year for a couple of months. And we were in Italy and it was the last day of our trip before driving back to France. We were in Florence, in fact, and I woke up in the early hours of that morning and I felt a lump in my right breast, which I'd never noticed before. It didn't hurt. It was almost, you know, very, very difficult to notice really, but I pressed it and it depressed. And then I, I took my hand away and tried again. It was still there. And my first thought was, oh dear, this is not good. I'm not sure what this is, but I definitely need to get this checked out. I went into a bit of a tailspin that day, actually. I told my husband, obviously he was really shocked and we were both, yeah, in a little bit of a state really. And we were wandering around Florence, drinking coffee and just talking, but keeping it secret from the girls. I didn't want to alarm them. Um, but what I did was made a pact with myself that as soon as I got home, I would make an appointment to have a mammogram at hospital. So that's what I did. I was seen very quickly. Um, and the um, radiologist who was doing my mammogram said, uh, he looked at he looked at the scans afterwards and he told me that there were some fuzzy edges to my lump which he wasn't very happy about so again that put you know at a bit of an alarm in me and he said i think we need to send this off for a biopsy now i lost my dad to cancer many years ago so i i knew the sort of steps that take you from scans to biopsies and beyond so yeah fair to say that i was pretty alarmed i had to wait 3 weeks for the results of the biopsy to let me know whether it was a, a benign um, lump or whether it was a tumor, a cancerous tumor. And I can honestly say, Dusty, they were, that was the longest three weeks of my life because we didn't tell anybody. It was just me and my husband who knew. And I just had to carry on as if life was very normal when life was anything but normal. What kind of thoughts were going through your mind? I was pretty convinced that it would be cancer. And I don't really know why that was because I've led up to that point. I mean, I was a, you know, uh, I'd given up eating meat years before, very Mediterranean diet. I ran marathons. I trained hard. I was a real fitness fanatic, loved a glass of wine or a glass of champagne and a late night and a party. But generally speaking, I led a kind of pretty clean living life, really. Um, so, yeah, I don't know why I thought it would be. Uh, you know, the, the the bad diagnosis. And when you said to yourself, you, 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 it sounds like you had convinced yourself you had cancer, assuming the worst. I was, yeah. And what were you thinking when you thought the worst? I was trying to think of how I would work through it. Um, obviously, I'm freelance. So I was trying to, I had jobs lined up abroad. I was thinking, what what will this mean for my jobs? You know, what kind of treatment will I have? My mind was racing and I really understand when someone's, you know, in that period before diagnosis, but when they fear something's up, 
I, I, I totally get that because that was me. I was just racing. My mind was racing. I'd go to bed at night and I wouldn't be able to go to sleep for thinking through it all. But then you're trying to put on this Oscar-winning performance as well to everyone else because you don't want to tell anyone what's going on in case you're worrying about nothing. And also, you're trying to process it yourself, all of your emotions. Um, it's hard. Yeah, it's interesting that you were thinking about work and how you're going to organise all your clients. Uh, I would have thought perhaps your mortality or your kids. Did you think about that? I tried not to think about that because I thought if I didn't think about that too hard, then I would just somehow get through it. So I was trying to focus on the tangibles in my life, the things that I can control, which is work. The emotional baggage of everybody else is not something that I can control. So I I think I made a probably a subconscious decision not to dwell on that. Um, Obviously, fearing that it was cancer, but hoping that it wasn't and hoping that all of this energy would just be a waste of energy and I'd be able to get back on with my life as soon as the results landed. So that was my hope and that was my, you know, but I I, I had to temper that with the fear that that might not be the case. Um, And yeah, I was trying to just deal in the tangibles, the things that I could take care of and work was one of those. So D-Day arrived and you went in for the meeting. Well, I actually found out on the phone, which is not supposed to be the way that it happens, but it that's how it happened. And there was no fault on, on the side of the person who told me. I insisted on, on being told. Um, and then I had the appointment the next day, very early in the morning. So I had that night to try and process the information, to break the news to my kids, which was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. Because at that stage, all we knew was that it was cancerous, but we didn't know what stage, we didn't know what the the real prognosis would be, what the treatment would be. I just knew that it was cancer in my breast. I knew nothing more than that. So that was a very, very hard night for my kids, for my husband and for me. It was just torment. I'm guessing your husband was the first person you told? Um, yeah. I told him very quietly and we were all having dinner actually uh, outside. It was a warm evening. We were on the terrace and the kids were laughing and joking. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to say anything until they've finished eating because if I tell them while they're eating, they won't be able to eat another mouthful. So the mum in me just kept control of it until they'd finished. And then I had to tell them, which gosh, when I think back, so, so hard. And they both just really crumbled. It was so devastating to to witness and they you know I think they took themselves off to bed they cried and they just didn't want to to say anything or do anything or see anyone they just tried to deal with it in their own way they were 12 and 16 then it was very very hard and my husband and I were just you know sitting there trying to make some sense of everything but without really you know knowing what we were going to do um, because we didn't know what was going to happen next all that I knew was that I had an appointment with my GP the next morning at 8.30 and he would talk me through the next stages of what was going to happen and that's when we would be able to make a plan. So you sound very pragmatic in that, you know, when you were thinking about it, you were thinking about work and how will I sort it out and now I now know I've had the phone call, I'm going in uh, to, you know, have my official medical meeting and come up with the plan and what was the plan? The plan was, I mean, my doctor was and is amazing. And uh, in the space of that consultation that morning, 
he called ahead to the hospital to arrange for me to see my oncologist, the man who would become my oncologist, um, to discuss surgery. Um, he told me that it was probably going to be surgery. And um, at the stage, at that stage, they saw from the biopsy and um, that it was a stage one, grade one lump. Um, a ductal carcinoma in situ is, I think, what they call it. So it was a carcinoma of the milk duct in the breast. And stage one is the earliest stage, caught early. So that was the best news out of that consultation. Um, and they thought that I would need surgery and radiotherapy. And the chemotherapy, I was my, I think it's the KI count, was really on the limit. So I may not need chemotherapy. And I was really hopeful that I wouldn't need it, to be honest, because I'd seen what that did to my dad and how brutal the treatment was. And I I was really frightened about that, more frightened about that than anything. Um, I had my oncologist appointment. He was amazing too and really put me at ease. And I felt like I was in very, very good hands with him. My husband and I went to that appointment together. And so I came home feeling like, okay, I know what I'm doing here and they know what they're doing. And I feel like I'm I'm in a good place here. And of course, I'm going to get through this. There's just no two ways about it. As it happened, we later found out, um, I think it was after the surgery, after the lumpectomy, that it was a grade two cancer, not a grade one. And it was growing more, more speedily than anyone thought and that the lump hadn't been there for very long. So that was when I went from potentially just radiotherapy after surgery to another operation to remove lymph nodes and chemotherapy for sure, and then radiotherapy. So suddenly my treatment protocol got longer and more involved, and the dreaded chemo came up. Um, and I had to come to terms with the fact that that's what I needed to, to have um, in order to get through, uh, you know, this, this, this disease. Quite often in life, we fear, or the fear of fear itself is the more dangerous thing. Do you know what I mean? When you're going in to do something that you haven't done before, so you knew you had radiology and chemotherapy and everything coming towards you, and you had naturally all of your fears in there. Now that you're the far side of it, how would you describe all of the treatments that you had? Were they as bad as you thought? Well, I decided I would be very proactive um, and I wanted to put myself in a place health-wise mentally and physically, where I just knew everything that was going on and and that my body and my head were in the right space for me to get through it as as well as possible. Um, Certainly with the chemotherapy, I knew that it made people very sick, very nauseous, and that you could barely keep food down and that you would be very tired, etc. And that that actually makes you more ill than the cancer does at that stage. So I decided to, I was recommended luckily by a friend, uh, an amazing nutritionist in London called Dr. Simone Laubscher, who has since become a great friend and a real guiding light for me. And uh, she had had great success in guiding cancer patients through their treatment, um, through diet and a food plan, which would simplify everything that was going on in their body digestive wise so that their body could just really throw everything at dealing with the chemotherapy, et cetera. So that again gave me the confidence to feel that I was putting myself in the best place possible to get through this uh, as unscathed as possible. In actual fact, because of following 
uh, Dr. Simone's diet and doing everything she told me to do. It was like my project because I couldn't work. So I, I made that my, my new focus. Um, I didn't get as ill as I feared I would in chemotherapy. I actually wasn't sick once. I, I, yeah, I got weak. I lost weight. I would be very tired. I would feel nauseous for sure after my treatments, which were every three weeks, intravenous drugs. Um, but I wasn't sick once in the four and a half months of my chemotherapy treatment, which I took as a real sign that what she was telling me to do was working. Um, radiotherapy, I feel like, you know, that's not the biggest demon here. That's not the scary thing. The, the biggest thing about that is having to be at the hospital at the same time every day, five days a week to have yourself zapped in the same place. You get a bit of sunburn around the area where they zap you at, once the treatment goes on, you know, the cumulative effect. Um, but And you, you get tired, but really that's that's a walk in the park by comparison. And even chemo was not the demon, the big bad wolf that I thought it would be. So, yes, looking back in hindsight, there's so much fear attached to those protocols and those treatments that I feel if you're really aware of what's going to happen um, you can't be aware properly until afterwards, but I would say to anyone who's about to go through that, try and manage your fears because it will probably not be as bad as you think it will. And, and nowadays it's, it's so good. The treatments are so targeted and you know, they give you anti-sickness drugs, which really help. And if you can simplify your diet a little bit, you know, and just be very, you know, watchful on that front, that can help too. So yeah, there's a huge amount that you can do and that they can do. To, to get you through it. And aside from medicine, what kind of what what kind of support did you have here? Because I always think ourselves as expats, you know, it's just we don't have family here or as much family as 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 maybe if we'd lived here and grown up here and all that kind of stuff. You'd you'd have aunties, uncles and great aunties and all that kind of stuff around. You're kind of a little bit more alone. What kind of support did you have here? I had great support here. I have a, an amazing group of friends here, an amazing community where I live, and everyone just stepped up to the plate and people were offering to cook. They were offering to drive me to my chemotherapy appointments when my husband was working. Um, you know, whatever I wanted, I was told, just ask, please don't hesitate, pick up the phone. It was phenomenal. And I felt very enveloped in in that love and that support I should say, too, that my family uh, all live in, live in London and my mum and my brother and my sister-in-law and uh, my mother-in-law who's in the UK, I mean, they were all amazing, too. They, they really, you know, they were constantly checking up on me, making sure I was okay. My friends in the UK were sending little care packages over, little cancer care packages with slippers and cashmere caps and all sorts of things, beautiful silk scarves for when I lost my hair. I mean, people were so thoughtful. I, literally, it was like a florist here. The first week of my diagnosis, I had flowers everywhere, which under normal circumstances, I'd be so happy with, but I just kept looking around thinking, oh my God, you know. It's a bit depressing to look at all these beautiful flowers, knowing why they've been sent, even though that the sentiment was wonderful. Mm. Um, but yeah, I did feel very well supported, very loved, and very, you know, very, very much like everybody was there for me. And everybody wants the best for you and wants to give you support. Do they realise how important it was to you that support? I think so. Yeah, I think they did. I think a lot of my well, a lot of my family and friends, 
I think they did have this fear attached too that if this could happen to me, then what hope did they have? A few of them said that to me. They said, God, you lead this such a healthy existence, you know, um, what chance is there for us if this can happen to you? So there was an element, I think, of fear in them that someone age 43 who was running marathons and, you know, vegetarian for years and so forth, could that, that this could happen to me too. Um, uh, but, yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I, the impression I got was that just that people really had my best interests at heart and that there was nothing that they wouldn't do for me. I didn't have anyone mm. flake out on me. N- nobody backed off and didn't know how to handle it yeah. and didn't, you know, you can get that. I think I know people who've had that situation where people would rather cross the road than, than have the conversation about cancer. And I can honestly say, Dusty, nobody was like that with me. Everyone was absolutely stepping up to the plate. For people who are scared to mention cancer to somebody who has it, um, what would you say to, to them? I would say, right, so if you, if you have a friend or family member who's been diagnosed, I would say don't be afraid because the person that's in that situation is really afraid and having people around them who are also afraid, even if you are afraid, if you can just have the confidence to, to try and broach it in a kind of um, – you know, in a way where you just, you just say, I understand, I'm with you, I'm here for you, whatever I can do, if it's cook a meal, drop your kids off at school, pick them up, come with you to an appointment, send you a playlist, whatever small thing I can do for you. Those are the things that, it's the little things that really count in this situation, because you yourself, the patient is dealing with the big stuff and trying to protect everyone else from that. But when someone offers to cook your family a meal or, um, you know, take them out for a pizza if you're too tired to want to do anything or just, you know, send you a lovely playlist or write you a beautiful poem, send you a lovely supportive card or a message on text, those are the little things that really do tip the balance, I think. And, uh, yeah, and there are ways in which everyone can be supportive. I understand the fear. I understand the awkwardness. I understand the... I don't know what to say to this person. I don't want to bring it up. But trust me, it's in their head 24-7, 100% of the time. You're not bringing up something that they've forgotten about. No way. They haven't forgotten about it. Aside from family and friends, what kind of support did you have from uh, the medical side of things here in France? The medical side was phenomenal and continues to be phenomenal. I 10 years down the line, um, 10 years on from diagnosis this year, I still have my controls, my blood tests um, every year, mammograms, uh, echographies, um, you know, everything to support me to feel that if anything were to change, we would know about it and we'd be able to act on it. Um, and also what I loved about the medical establishment here which is unlike what I would have expected really because my only previous medical interventions have been when I had my children in hospital in London. Um, They make you a part of um, the the procedures and they discuss everything with you and they give you custody of your notes. So you can see the whole time what's going on, what your treatment protocol is, what's going to happen. Everything is shared with you. And my doctors were amazing at imparting that information. And what that meant to me was that was a resource for me. And that's why I decided to write a book in the end about it, because I felt I'd been given so much amazing information. What else could I do with this? It wasn't just useful for me. It would be useful for other women too. So hence, that became my project while I was ill, 
just to record everything, write everything down and hopefully use it for, for other women so that they could feel a little bit more in control of what was happening to them. But yeah, super supportive, super quick, very, very reactive, the medical establishment down here in cancer. I was very, very impressed. You mentioned uh, 10 years. So obviously the treatment was came to an end and a successful one as well. Uh, d- tell me where was the corner that you turned that you went all of this effort and everything I'm going through is having an effect and I think I might make it. Well, the last day of my treatment, which was um, a uh, radiotherapy uh, appointment, I think I had about six and a half weeks of radiotherapy. My gorgeous friend, Millie, who now lives in New Zealand, rocked up at the hospital with a mini little bottle of champagne and we weren't allowed to crack it open on the ward, (laughs) much to our disappointment. But she thoughtfully brought two plastic champagne flutes. And so we got into the car in the underground car park and we cracked open the bottle. I know we shouldn't have done that, but we did. And we drank a glass and a half in the car and we were so excited. I mean, drinking champagne straight after chemo, maybe not such a good move, but oh my God, it was like a real sort of milestone we're through this. She was like, you're through this. I was like, yes. And so that was, that was a little marker. Um, I actually went away on a job about two or three days after my treatment ended, uh, to Toronto, um, and then went on to a holiday with some girlfriends to Coachella to a music festival, uh, in Palm Springs. And so that again was like drawing a line. I can travel, I can get on a plane, I mean, I had a bald head. I had no hair, no eyebrows, nothing. Um, and I was confident enough to go off with my, you know, just barefaced, bareheaded, without a wig on, without a cap on. Had a brilliant, brilliant time. Um, and then I suppose the next milestone was, that was all in the April 2012. And I did um, a cycle ride uh, to raise money for an amazing charity in the UK, was organized by a friend of mine and it was called Peace de Plage. And I did the final day, which was 110 kilometers on a bike from Oran down to Juan Lipin. And I spoke to so many amazing people that day on my bike um, who had wives going through cancer or had been through cancer, had lost parents or whatever. And so we were swapping stories on bikes, people I'd never met before who just became great great friends, great confidants on that journey. And I just thought, here I am doing 110 kilometers. I've raised thousands of euros for a really worthwhile charity today. I just felt invincible that day. My father always told me there's no such thing as a silly question. So I hope you don't think this is a silly question, but how does it feel to be bald with no eyebrows? Very, you feel very vulnerable. And to begin with, I, I mean, that was along with the whole chemo thing that was a big demon for me, the losing of my hair was major. It was really tied in with that. I I think I would have done anything not to lose my hair. I tried the cold cap. It didn't work for me. And then, you know, I had to come to terms with the fact that that's what was happening. I tried to kind of not wash my hair very often, but I would literally get out of bed and leave half my hair on the pillow every morning. It was so, so debilitating and so depressing. And then I got my daughters to shave my head. We had a family shave uh, upstairs in the bathroom. And uh, once I was completely bald without any silly tufty bits and ridiculous sort of 
you know, bits on my head that were just like coming through like tiny bits of grass. Once I was completely bald, I actually thought I feel better. I look better. I look a bit more kind of determined, a bit more like, okay, this is happening. Um, I've got no more hair to lose now. Um, and yeah, in an interesting way, I can't tell you that I felt comfortable. I, I wore a wig mainly because my daughter, my youngest daughter just didn't like seeing me bald. Um, she was still so young then and she just wanted her mum back with her hair. Um, but I would certainly take the wig off when the girls were at school and I'd wander around the house with the bald head. I didn't have any problem with that. And then it was quite telling that it took for me to finish my treatment and see some friends in London. And, uh, I showed them, I took the wig off. We hated the wig. I showed, showed them what I looked like without it. And one of them said, oh my goodness, you look so amazing without that stupid wig. You know, why are you wearing that wig? You don't need it. And it was spring in the UK. It was like April time. And I just thought, you're right. And so the, ne that, the next day I was flying from Heathrow to, to LA and I flew without a wig on. And it was the most amazing feeling. And I was on the plane and yeah, people looked at me, but I didn't care because I thought I've just come through the most incredible journey um, and people weren't looking in a weird way. They were looking in a kind of a, wow, get you kind of way. And, and so many strangers would come up to me. Certainly when I was in LA, people would high five me in the streets. Um, yeah, it was phenomenal. I did the Cannes Film Festival with a bald head as well. And Jay-Z said, I love your look. I love the way you're looking with that bald head. I mean, look, it's not a look I'm going to go back to, but that was quite a, a moment. Where was the point where you said... That's it. There, there's the line. I've, I've come through this. I'm over it, and now I just need to get my, my, my checks regularly. Do you know, Dusty? I can't lie. There isn't, there isn't that moment. There's a bit of me that, that just feels if I ever say that, it's almost like complacency is creeping in, and I'm sadly I have lost a few very, very good friends to this disease who thought they were through and then, you know, had remission and then had a relapse or different kind of cancer or metastasized cancer and didn't come through the other side. So I, um, I'm very aware that, uh, you know, I look at it that, yes, medically I'm in remission. I've, I celebrate 10 years on the September the 15th. That's my cancer anniversary. That's my diagnosis, my extra birthday, if you like, that I always you know, quietly celebrate to myself each year. And this year it will be the 10th one of those. So yeah, that's going to be special. I'm sure I'll plan something for that this year. But honestly, I never think of myself as cured in inverted commas. I still have that hateful wig upstairs in a box because I'm frightened to throw it out because I feel like the moment I do that, I'm inviting fate to come and take a turn. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an interesting mindset, but I feel like, yep, I've got this. I'm in control. My controls, my mammograms, my my tests are all clear. Yay. I live to fight another day. I live to live another day. And that's all good. How do you think the entire process has changed you? Well, it's definitely changed me as a human being. Um, it's changed my attitudes uh, and my, I think it's probably changed my personality a bit too. Um, I would never have chosen for this to happen to me. I would, you know, rather have not gone through what I went through, but I can't tell you that there haven't been positives because there really have. And I think I'm a better person for having gone through this. I think, um, 
I worry less about things that are unimportant. I've really learned, you know, I was always, I was always quite a, a, a cup half full person. I'm now a cup overflowing person. I mean, even if it's raining, like it is at the moment here, I'm kind of like, oh, that's good. The plant's getting water and it'll be sunny again tomorrow. In the winter, it's like, oh, it's snow in the mountains. I can go skiing tomorrow. I try always to see the upside. It's not even trying. I just do see the upside because I ultimately feel so lucky to still be here. And as I said to you earlier, I, you know, I have friends who are not as lucky as me who, 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 who aren't still here and should be actually and, and who are gone far too soon. And so I feel extremely privileged that I'm still here and that I can try and make a little difference by sharing my story with people. Um, I talk to a lot of people who've just been diagnosed with cancer. Lots of friends of friends get in touch with me. People from all over really sometimes contact me, touch base with me to, to talk about my experience. And if I can just give a little bit of confidence to people going through it and to say that you can do this, you will do this, you can come out the other side and you can feel amazing. And it can be a really positive thing, you know, a positive journey, then, then that's all good. But I do, I feel like, yeah, I worry less. Um, I enjoy life absolutely to the max. I, I've since, since my cancer diagnosis, I've, um, I learned to snowboard. <laughs> I've done all sorts of crazy things and it's kind of a, a do, you know, do or die thing really. It's like, yeah, if I don't, when, what am I waiting for? If I don't try this now, when am I going to try it? So I try and keep myself as healthy as possible, as fit as possible, but I enjoy all of that. So it, it's not a, it's not a big deal. It's not a, a high price to pay. It's, it's what I enjoy doing. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You're so welcome, Dusty. It's great to chat to you. I hope it's uh, I hope it comes in useful to anyone who's listening. Our story today was brought to you by Mimosa Matters, the association of people from all over Europe who have chosen to base themselves on the French Riviera and who want to give back to the local community which has embraced them. For more information about the association and its work to fight cancer in the south of France, go to mimosamatters.org. From myself, Dusty Rhodes, until next time, take care, stay safe.